Welcome to the Open Sources Guelph Digest. My name is Scotty Hertz. OSG Digest showcases one of our notable interviews from our regular show here on CFRU, either from the archives or occasionally we have something hot off the virtual press. And this week we have something new from the international file. For those of you interested in urbanism, cities, planning, bicycles, and how to keep your cool in an air aid, you will not want to miss today's guest. Michael Koval-Anderson is an urban designer, an author, and the host of Life Size City, which streams here in Canada on TV Ontario and CBC Gem, and he's the founder of Bikes for Ukraine. Michael Koval-Anderson joins us today from Kiev. Welcome to the program, Michael. Thanks very much, man. Good to talk to you. I hate to say this, but these days, up-to-date reports from Kiev and Ukraine have become kind of patchy at best, obviously overwhelmed by events elsewhere in the world, but no less important. So what's the situation there currently, seeing as it's an active war zone? It's, I mean, in the capital, it's pretty, it's always intense. There's an, let me just check. Yeah, there's an error rate at the moment, but, you know, they're really preemptive. If a jet takes off somewhere in Russia with the potential for uh, missiles, you know, then they let you know. But like a couple of weeks ago, dude, it was the largest missile strike in the history of humans that was launched against Ukraine. So, yeah, that was just off the charts, man. Their pulse is racing. There's a one, they shoot most of the, stuff down these days especially in the big cities but there was one cruise missile that snuck through and two kilometers from here 30 people died in one go right so it's uh it's it's pretty intense but life goes on you know as the missiles are you know being shot down there's girls walking past with yoga mats dudes having a cigarette out on the street right so after two years you just kind of suck it up right it becomes daily life and then it also at the same on the same note becomes completely bizarre right that you're just trying to live a little daily life and you know people are dying in all over the country right so but it's human man you just try to make it work you know and the ukrainians as everybody knows are incredibly resilient so i just follow their lead and and their lead often takes me to bars so uh, so i mean last week you were down in one of the hot zones in uh, kyrgyzstan and and but for good reason too cuz i guess congratulations are in order as bikes for ukraine your project has delivered its 1000th bicycle which is a significant milestone in a short period so Tell us a bit about that, how the project came about and how you've gotten to this point. It was April 2022. Russia's on the doorsteps of Kiev and, you know, nobody knows what's happening. And I get a an email in my inbox from two urban planning colleagues from uh, Ukraine. I didn't know them, but they just kind of, you know, desperately says, hey, let's ask that guy in Copenhagen. Can he get bikes? Because back then, massive refugee exodus from the east. So you have the city of Lviv in the west. You know, all of a sudden, from almost Tuesday to Wednesday, has 200,000 extra people. Mobility was paralyzed. You know, absolute chaos back then, right? And uh, and I just was elated to get this email because I'm standing there looking at what's happening in Ukraine. And then something comes in saying, hey, Michael, this is in your wheelhouse. You can do this, right? And I said, all right, boys, let me have a look at this, uh, how to get used bicycles in Denmark uh, and Europe and get them shipped to Ukraine. And off we went. And that ended up taking over my life, man, ever since. I think I've been in Ukraine, I think, 15 months in total since the start of the full invasion. You know, um, I'm here all the time. I have an apartment now that I'm renting because there's there's other stuff. we can, I'm doing so many other projects as well. But the bikes thing, man, that was it's perfect for me having written the book about how to design cities for bikes. But then 
sourcing used bikes, you know, that somebody doesn't want in uh, Copenhagen or elsewhere in Europe and then delivering them here. And these bikes, man, it's not just nice to have. They are literally doing amazing work. One bike that we deliver here, it's going to be used to deliver food, water, medicine, humanitarian aid. Doctors and nurses use them. It helps people in the most devastated areas of this country, out in the countryside, right, where the roads are bombed, there's a gas shortage or the gas prices are high. Public transport is incredibly unreliable. So a simple poetic uh, gesture of sending one bike here, it will literally help so many other people, right? You see like young volunteers that we uh, send the bikes to, 30 kilograms of potatoes on the back rack, you know, jugs of water on the handlebars, and they hammer out 10 kilometers to a little village to give some, you know, essential aid to uh, the elderly or whoever needs it, right? Like today, 40% of Ukrainians still need humanitarian aid. That is a lot of Ukrainians, right? So these bikes literally deliver things that people need. And because they're on bikes, that frees up space in the other logistics, in vans and trucks, right? So it's so poetic, right? This little string instrument in the, you know, barely audible under the drums of war, but they are literally helping Ukrainians deal with the ongoing uh, war and the effects of it, right? So I'm, I love the poetry of it, man. But then, you know, I also know the power of the bicycle, uh, the simple, humble bicycle, you know, and what it can do for us in times of crisis, uh, war, disaster, and in our daily lives in our cities, right? So, yeah, poetry, man, doesn't get old. And you touched on your other projects there, which are obviously an extension of what you're doing there. So do you want to talk a bit about what's next? Yeah. I mean, it's it's really fascinating. I don't know about many other war zones, but... You know, the Ukrainians, man, they're just going, yeah, this really sucks, right? (laughs) Obviously, to be invaded. (laughs) But they are just hell-bent on fixing stuff right away. They're not waiting for the full invasion to end and victory or whatever. They're, they're, they're rebuilding, they're redesigning, rethinking across the board in the cities where they have not been hit very hard. And of course, the cities that are absolutely devastated, right? There is just such an amazing vibe here um, of renewal, right? In, in spite of falling missiles. And so I just started walking into things like already like back in 2022, I've designed the entire bicycle strategy, the infrastructure for the city of Mykolaiv in the south. I am currently designing uh, therapy gardens for people with mental health um, and PTSD exists in the Nordic countries, but really unknown here. And that is a major public health crisis they have here, man, mental trauma, you know, not just the soldiers and the veterans, but also just regular citizens, you know, uh, you can imagine um, the worry, the stress and everything. So these therapy gardens, uh, you know, will be places where people can go in and participate in nature-based healing, um, will educate the health mental health professionals about how to use them. So we're doing a pilot project right here in my neighborhood in Kiev, and, uh, and I just want them to roll out across the board in every Ukrainian city and Ukrainians are going, oh, my God, this is amazing. This is, you know, they all are aware of this coming crisis. You know, domestic abuse rates are on the rise. People are messed up in so many ways because of what they're experiencing daily. So um, it's a it's not the vaccine that will solve everything, but it is certainly an important design intervention. And it's a great mix for me of urbanism, you know, creating a green space in an urban setting and with the benefits of mental health and mental healing. Right. So that one is kind of taking over my life. Uh, <laughs> 
the last couple of weeks. So there's so many things you can do here and I can do stuff I can't do anywhere else in the world. And I can do it with people who are so passionate about it. Right. So grateful that you're here and trying to help them. So, yeah, it's uh, it's, it's always tough to leave when I have to go, you know, leave the country to go home for a while. It's always tough, but it's always great to come back because that's the vibes, you know. So, yeah, they struggle like I can't even imagine. I mean, I'm living here. I can't imagine the struggle that so many people have here. But the other side of it, the flip side is, man, they're they're the they're looking for change, right? One of the mayors in the mayor of Mikolaev, he actually said to me, he said, "Man, you know, let's just do this. Let's you know design this city for bikes. This is my opportunity for positive urban change. I can do this now when I'd never be able to do it, but you know, in any other situation." So I hear that phrase like almost you know quoted verbatim across uh, across the country here. This is the time, right? Let's do this. The young people here, man, they are electric. They see this opportunity in a very hierarchical um, society to uh, finally have an influence on on urbanism, on social issues, you name it, right? So yeah, it's really uh, an addictive vibe um, being here and having the opportunity to help in so many different ways, all of them within my wheelhouse, which makes me happy. You know, I got stuff in my head. I got to use it. You know what I mean? For sure. And I, I take it you're documenting the whole thing is this the type of thing that we'll see in the future maybe in what's been hinted at the next season of life-size city or something like that oh i would love to i've been i've been pitching an idea around here like you know obviously you know they're spending money on important things like defending themselves and social issues and stuff so but i've been pitching around to some big companies here like kind of like a just a ukrainian version of the life-size city where this where this schmuck (laughs) travels around (laughs) to the city's um, you know, and, and exploring the culture of the urbanism and and meeting the people, you know, kind of, you know, even though Ukraine, as you said, you know, you led with that, how, you know, it doesn't really appear in the media as much as it does before. War fatigue is a phenomenon in the in the media and so many other nasty things happening takes the focus away from you know everything else. But, yeah, it's kind of uh, I mean, I document everything we're doing here. We're doing a lot of tactical urbanism coming up when the spring hits us going out and fixing stuff on the urban landscape. I got a group of young kids here who are just electric about doing this. So never a dull moment, I can tell you. But, yeah. I would uh, I'd, I I document it as much as I can, mostly on Instagram, some on my YouTube. I got to get some more game on back on the YouTube channel. But uh, oh, yeah, this I mean, what happens here can happen anywhere. And if they can do it in a war zone, then you can do it in Winnipeg, you know, what I mean, uh, or wherever, wherever you are. Right. Um, it's an inspiration. It's for, for people everywhere that you can you can change things. You can do it fast and effective uh, if you if you want it. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm this guy, you know, I'm 56 and uh worked all over the world. I really feel like I am, you know, like a 15 year old, you know, when I'm in this country, the stuff I can do here, the energy there is every day among the people I'm with. Right. So yeah, keeps you young. Well, that kind of speaks to my next question. We were saying about applying the principles the world over, as you've shown in, in life size city and, and other things, mm-hmm. you know, get out, do the homework. There's obviously people doing, let's call it direct action. But there's also bringing it back to, say, the, the Canadian model where the, the planners are just kind of sitting in the office and not getting out and looking at what's actually happening. You call it the observational, right? The burning question, at least in in my case, when with our city, let's speak to Canadian cities for a second. How do we go about getting that to happen? Is it, you know, there's the, is the gentle coaxing? Do we try and get progressives elected? Do we just go out and do it? Is it like a combination of, of these things? It's like I've heard this question for years, and and really the the thing about it that sucks is that it, it is 
despite all the best efforts of the most amazing activists and, you know, passionate citizens all over the world, at the end of the day, in many cases, it really is top down. So back to what you said, <laughs> electing the progressives, right? I think that's the big picture, right? Like the radical urban change that we deserve in our cities after 70, 80 years of car-centric engineering, you know, we need to go back to urban design. It's a whole different profession, which really focuses on how humans should thrive in a city. And we, we know how to do it, right? We've lived in cities for 7,000 years and there's so many things that we can learn from the past, um, you know, r- rational, logical uh, solutions, which are hard to see because of the, uh, the elephant in the room, you know, car-centric planning, right? So, yeah, electing the pro- progressives. But I think, you know, after four seasons of the life-size city, I've, I, I've really, really learned that it is the citizens, right, that make the change, that force the change. And and they can, and we, we, I said, they, I'm, I'm also a citizen, we can do it in our neighborhood, right? The, the battle against all the things that we're facing, climate change, you know, car-centric planning in this country, war and invasion and financial, you know, crises and everything. The battle starts in your neighborhood. It's street by street neighborhood by neighborhood and then city by city, right? So going out there and planting a a food wall or a garden or doing some cool tactical urbanism, taking away a parking spot, giving, making a parklet for people to sit down, the elderly or whatever, you know, it really is uh, up to the citizens now. And we've been completely ignored because of the monster of engineering and, you know, car centric thinking. Nobody's asked us any questions for 70, 80 years. Nobody's consulted us. But that is what I learned from day one of filming The Life Size City is that there is this amazing collective subconscious, you know, movement, a neighborhood in Buenos Aires, a neighborhood in Toronto, in Tokyo, all over the world. People are standing up going, you know what? I'm kind of tired of not being heard. Stuff ain't getting fixed and I want it done, right? I want to fix it. Let me get some neighbors together and um, and just do it, you know? So that really is a sign that uh, people have, are fed up, right? Where the shelf life for being ignored is like that 70 years of car-centric planning. And now it's going, yeah, enough is enough. The episode of Toronto in the Life Size City in season one, I think it's still one of the ones that inspires me the most. I had no idea that... There are so many people in Toronto who are taking part in NGOs and social programs. Everybody I know there is just doing something with somebody, right? Because of the the complete disconnect between City Hall and the rest of the city after they amalgamated back in you know the late 90s, right? And removed local democracy um, and sent everybody downtown. So people are going, yeah, stuff ain't getting done. Let's do it. And that's across the board around the world. So, you know, it's it's your street. It's your neighborhood, man, and you, you can get some friends together and do some amazing things. And you don't have to be the, the crazy, angry activist. You can just be like a family and say, hey, kids, let's get out there and do some stuff. It's your city, man. Let's leave our fingerprints on it, right? So everybody listening, please do that. Thank you. <laughs> the the call to action. Yeah, and we um, quite enjoyed the, the the Hamilton episode because uh, being on Highway 6, we have more of an affinity to Hamilton now. It's We're getting more tied to Toronto with with the links that are being created, the go, the go train and whatnot but speaking to examples i mean you've been all over the world not just with life-size city but in your life in terms of solutions and i know you find solutions everywhere but would you say is there any one place and not to play favorites but is there somewhere you would say here is a place that is doing it for the most part correctly and go there take notes observe and learn is is there anywhere that kind of fits that mold or yeah, there's a few. And back to what we were talking about before. Damn, it's top down leadership <laughs> every yeah. time. Uh, it depresses me when I have to uh, admit that. But it is. Uh, so you live in a Canadian city, right? 
big or small. And then you think Tokyo. Oh, my God. It has nothing to do with us, right? It's just the population's larger than Canada, right? It's a mega city. And yet that is probably the most life-size city I've ever been in my life. You know, it's not the whole glossy neon that we see when we think about uh, Tokyo. It's the neighborhoods. Four-year-old children walk to kindergarten by themselves, you know. Um, it's There's a lot of societal aspects that won't be very easily transferable into any other context. But the way they design their cities and their neighborhoods where they live, not downtown where they work, but man, that, it, that's really inspiring. So the general point there is like, let's not just say, oh, that's that's Japanese. That's Tokyo. It's a mega city. I'm from Guelph or I'm from, you know, Abbotsford, you know, it has nothing to do with me. Oh, yes, it does. Right. Because they're just humans who design something really nice and all humans deserve <laughs> to live in a place that's nice. Right. That's kind of the my little joker answer. But. I always say right now, you know, there's cities like Copenhagen where I live, man, you know, benchmark city for urbanism, years and years of, you know, very logical, rational, pragmatic approach to making things better. And most humans, if they want to be, can be rational and pragmatic. So things to learn there. Right now, though, the city to watch and really the only city on the planet is Paris. They're, they've had political leadership for 20 years now, the same kind of group of people. And I don't even know what ha- every week something happens in Paris that just is just makes my jaw drop. You know, I spend a lot of time there. I was there for a, a whole month uh, last February on an artist residency and just like every school in the city, they're just blocking the street off for cars. Children should not have to walk down a busy street to get in the door of their school across the board, the whole city. They're building bike lanes like there's no tomorrow. They're hosting the Olympics and they're making bike lanes You'll be able to ride your bike to every venue in the city, right, on um, Olympic bike lanes, they're calling them, right? Greening the city. They're creating urban forests all over the city, huge ones right outside City Hall. Imagine Toronto City Hall, that whole plaza, lifeless plaza with tourists taking photos of themselves in front of the Toronto sign. Imagine that as like a forest rewilded with benches and, you know, the whole cooling effect of on a hot day, you name it, right? So Paris is definitely the one. There's a kind of a freestyle film I made on the on my YouTube channel about that. Um, that's inspiring because it's Paris, one of the most iconic cities in, in in history, right? So that that is inspiring. And you know, a city like Toronto or Montreal, the bigger cities can be inspired by what bigger cities are doing. They usually like to think they can do it themselves, right? But definitely Paris is amazing. But Medellin and Colombia, again, oh, they're they're Colombians. Nothing to do with us, you know, but. They have had political leadership that completely transformed that city from the murder capital of the world in the Pablo Escobar era to the urbanist darling. Still today, it's still just a Disneyland for people like me, man, the stuff they've done there, you know. So, yeah, bunch of cities. There's no one answer, but I think Paris is the one to watch at the moment. But there's lots of elements, man. And there's this kind of a not invented here mentality. That's what you call it. But, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, well, this is this is America. This is Canada. Yeah, we can do it ourselves. We don't need those, you know, Europeans to tell us what to do. And, you know, we can all learn from each other. We should not be shy from uh, freely stealing the best ideas and implementing them in, in whatever city uh, or town that we live in. Right. It's just, you know, it's a lot of talk, a lot of inaction. And uh, with all the stuff coming down the pipeline, climate change and everything, it really is uh, time to just not be so arrogant and say, okay, great. What do they do in Finland? Fine, let's do it here, you know, because <laughs> uh, that works. And they did the proof of concept. They spent the money, took the risks, and now it's just just copy-paste, man. Control-C, control-V. That's the, that's, that's the future of urbanism. Steal and uh, implement. Boom. 
Well, and something I wish that we would steal from Finland, and I'm not sure how mythical it is or how it's working in application, is the idea of giving everyone a home. Because if there's any problem that we have here is housing, and they'll always argue, it's like, well, it's about density. But the density isn't in the Tokyo style where it's kind of not spread out. It's like, let's just slam in a bunch of condos. We'll go with that. But that in turn causes a bunch of, of other problems. And I know, you know, speaking of problems and, and issues in other places, you speak you speak about Copenhagen and have a book about it as well, which is good. But I also watched some of your street fight clip, at least the dubbed one that was in, in English. And I have to say it's a bit more, a bit more informal than life size city, but, but great to see. I kind of, yeah, it's, it was very freeform. It looked like you were having a, a good time with that. On the one hand, presenting Copenhagen as a place, but yet there's, it still has its issues, right? You needed to have a little rant. You f- it felt like you wanted to get that off of your chest in terms of like, yeah, we're doing certain things right, but other things, uh, we need some work. Like kind of, we have it here too, b- building the building that you name after the thing that was destroyed. We have something called Bullfrog Mall, where it was like, there were bullfrogs, <laughs> now there's a mall. That's really the life-size city, I think, that sort of made me look at my own city more critically. It's a great city, literally one of the best in the world regarding urbanism and the country regarding social issues and everything, right? But yeah, then you start realizing, wait a minute. And Copenhagen has had this problem. You know, they just rested on their laurels for years. You know, you got 15 years of people saying, oh my God, you're so amazing. You know, you're so beautiful. You all, you know, then if somebody tells you that every day, you're, you you don't change anything. You just kind of keep the same hairstyle because everybody's commenting on it. You know, <laughs> oh, I love your outfit. Oh, I'm going to keep this kind of outfit. And so Copenhagen has rested on their laurels and there's a bit of a political shift now. They're getting a bit lazy. Um, so yeah, and shooting the Danish series was great because, you know, you... Canadians with TVO, I wasn't allowed to swear, which is incredibly hard for me. <laughs> and then in Denmark, there's literally no censorship. So I can swear in every language and nobody, nobody even blinks, you know. So that was really fun to be able to do, like you said, a little more freestyle approach there. So you, you get, I mean, Lifestyle City is great, but I mean, when you irritate people as well as inspire them at the same time, then then you're you're winning, you know what I mean? So really with that approach I had in uh, in that series was really in your face. Like some of the stuff I said in data, I mean, I would never say that on, you know, Canadian, I wouldn't be allowed to say it on Canadian television probably, you know, but um, yeah, that was cool. But yeah, it's, you know, it rested on the laurels, man. You gotta, you gotta keep moving. There's no perfect city, right? You got one that's pretty close. Sure. But it's not perfect. And there's, it, it's so easy to mess up all the good things you've spent 30 years doing, man. You can mess it up in three years, right? That's, that's really important to consider that dismantling is a lot faster than building, you know? So that was the risk that Copenhagen faces now is that they could just drop the ball, man. And I irritate a lot of people in Copenhagen. I say, oh, just look at Paris. It's literally the, it's, we're done with Copenhagen, right? Just It's nice. And there's so many good things to learn, but look at Paris. They are dynamic. You know, they're, they're just going for it, man, like nobody else, you know? And that's just generally an inspiration when you see politicians and uh, policymakers just going nuts. And the stuff the mayor of Paris says, man, she's like a woman after my own heart. Owning a car in a big city is, it's kind of archaic, you know? It's kind of last century and banning through traffic through the entire city center of Paris this year, you know, just, if you live there with a car, fine, but you can't drive through. You gotta go up to the motorway and go all the way around. It's just really radical stuff. Radical is what people maybe perceive it as, but it's really just incredibly intelligent, you know, removing pollution from the city, keeping people safer in the city because you're, you're slowing down the traffic and they're banned. They're voting on banning SUVs in the city center, like coming up soon, you know, just what the hell is this place? It's amazing. So whatever the issue that you're dealing with is there's still inspiration to be had by 
how how progressive and and passionate these politicians are, you know, in Paris. So lastly, I have to ask, rather than call them the worst, who who needs more work? Obviously, lots of places in North America. But where where have you been? There's just like, what are we doing here? What is going on? Yeah, man. Through the years, a lot of people have seen the series or heard me speak about urbanism and um, and everybody. What about like Asian cities? And I'm going, oh, yeah, I really you know, or African cities like, you know, it's a beautiful chaos. You know, you you can see it on YouTube or wherever, right? you know, just like no traffic rules. Just, everything works, though, you know, that. Yeah, those kind of places will never be uh cute and polished Nordic capitals, right? And they should never be, I mean, either. But those that's the challenge. I'm not saying, you, you said worst. I'm not saying they're the worst. I'm merely saying that they are really a massive challenge, you know, figuring out how to, uh, you know, some semblance of order into a city like Mumbai or, you know, uh, Nairobi or whatever, right? That's, that's the, I can never answer that question. But then, yeah, and, you know, chaotic Bangkok, you know, so much engineering and concrete and pollution and all, you know, that's like, oh, my God, there's so many things we can do there. Right. But I think I'm, I'm going to go. I mean, uh, uh, I'm going home here, buddy. Um, you know, <laughs> my parents immigrated to Canada in 1953, where I was born and raised in Calgary. Then I left Canada at 19 and then and, and went you know, traveling and went ended up back in the in the homeland in Denmark. But. Yeah, filming the life-size city in season four there, talking to the mayor, and man, she is so cool. That woman, I tell you, she's just talking to an urbanist. Like, she knew all the key phrases, and she knew exactly what she was talking about, right? And then she's saying stuff, and I said, okay, wait a minute, because you're saying the same stuff that I heard when I grew up in Calgary, like at the age of 10, right? Oh, this city's on the cusp of change and we shouldn't be uh, handcuffed to one industry and, you know, and, and just all the same. And it was almost verbatim, right? And I'm going, this is 50 years of saying the same damn thing. I go back to Calgary and I go, this is the same place that it was 50 years ago, like <laughs> when I was a kid. There's no difference. You know, maybe there's more parkways and you know, parks and, you know, places to ride a bike along the river. But man, it's still this absolute, you know, North American typology city, right? Uh, where the the downtown empties and everybody goes to the suburbs, you know, the donut, we call it a donut in urbanism, right? And it's, it's an empty hole in the uh, at night, no life downtown, people stick to their suburbs. So yeah, I'm going to give Calgary a, a rap on the knuckles there because they just, you know, with the kind of the Calgary vibe, yeehawk, you know, we're oil capital and all that bombastic kind of approach in the rhetoric. It's like, yeah, you've been talking for 50 years and you ain't done anything, man. So those kind of cities in North, in, in America, in the States as well, you know, that they're so locked into that typology. It's so hard to change. Right. Um, fair enough. Calgary built the light rail transit in the 80s, which nobody else was doing in North America. And it's just a massive success still. But yeah. The, the, the loud talkers, you know, they're the ones you got to really keep an eye on because it's just a lot of a lot of talk and not so much action, you know, but that, that kind of thing, you know, in, in your in your neck of the woods. I think Toronto better. Montreal, great. Vancouver has this, you know, qualities, but you got that Calgary vibe, Denver, Houston kind of thing. That's those are the one. Phoenix is the one I always use, man. <laughs> you know, Phoenix is like the last city we're going to ever fix because it's the sprawl is just so massive. There's no density, you know. So that typology of cities, that's still the, uh, you know, the thorn in my side, uh, you know, the one that makes me want to cry. <laughs> Well, you've given us a lot to think about and uh, homework indeed. So thanks for joining us today, Michael. And if uh, listeners want to learn more about you and what you've been up to, what you're doing, how can they do that? Send me a postcard. No. Uh, 
No, Instagram probably. You know, follow me on Instagram, uh, the YouTube channel for the Life Size City. Um, I got. I'm going to be doing some more stuff here from Ukraine to show you what what's going on here and the challenges they face, and perhaps you can reflect yourself in the challenges here with where you live in Canada. It's kind of a similar, you know, but it's basically Toronto here, right? It's the same size and stuff and same kind of challenges. So now you made me want to do this little life size city riff in Ukrainian cities. Best of luck to you, both Ukraine and beyond. And uh, we look forward to hearing what's going to transpire in the future. Great. Thanks so much, man. Pleasure. Thanks a bunch. That was the last international with their modern take on Lead Belly's Bourgeois Blues. Thanks again to Michael Colville Anderson. If you'd like to hear this episode again or share it with someone else, please visit CFRU.ca slash archives where you can revisit all of our previous episodes. This has been Open Sources Guelph Digest. To find out more about open sources, please visit opensourcesguelph.com. I'm Scotty Hertz. For the Open Sources team, Slanja. Watch out. Ooh, it's a good watch out.